Welcome to another episode of Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast sponsored by the American Institute of Dental Public Health. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and today we're talking about women in health leadership. Although women ostensibly account for 50% of patients, women only account for a fraction of healthcare leadership. The healthcare industry is powered by women. More than 76 of hospital employees are women. More than 77% of people who work in doctor's offices are women. More than 88% of home health workers are women. When we consider leadership positions, executive or senior level administration, only 16% of healthcare leadership positions are held by women, with only 11% of those positions being held by women of color. In academia, women have earned the majority of doctorates for eight consecutive years but are only 32% of full professors and 30% of college presidents. Yikes. Why do we see such a disparity in our leadership? How can we make the table bigger and pull up more seats for intersectional leadership? My guests today talk about their approaches to leadership in male-dominated areas, strategies for identifying mentors, and empowering women and the health workforce. I'm joined today by Dr. Rena D'Souza, a professor of dental sciences, neurobiology and anatomy, pathology and surgery at the University of Utah. She currently serves as assistant vice president for academic affairs and education for the health sciences. As a clinician scientist, Rena has been strongly committed to discovery and mentoring throughout her academic career. She is past president of the American Association for Dental Research and is the current president of the International Association for Dental Research, the largest global dental research organization with over 12,000 members in over 100 countries worldwide. I'm also joined by Dr. Tamana Tawari, who is an assistant professor and the associate director at the Center for Oral Disease Prevention and Population Health Research at University of Colorado. She is the immediate past president of IADR's Women in Science and the section counselor and membership chair for the APHA Oral Health Section. Let's hear what Rena and Tamana have to say about women and healthcare leadership. Welcome to another episode of Anecdotal Evidence. I'm here with Rena D'Souza and Tamana Chawari. Thank you both for being here today. It's a pleasure. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks, yeah. Rena. Thanks. Thanks, Thank Alice, for inviting us. Of course, anytime. So today we uh, kind of had a side conversation, actually. So Tamana and I were talking because I saw that she was attending this really wonderful leadership conference, the IDEA International Le uh, Leadership Conference. Let me restart that. The IDEA International Women's Leadership Conference. And I saw Tamana tweeting about all of these really wonderful concepts, and I thought, uh, that sounds really interesting, number one. Number two, I want to learn more. And number three, can you come on the podcast and help teach everybody else about these wonderful things that uh, you're discussing? So Tamana, thankfully, uh, asked Rena to come onto the podcast too. And so I'm so excited for both of you to be here to share all of these uh, wonderful concepts that we hear about, we experience, we see every day, um, and hopefully share your perspectives, both being women uh, in leadership positions. So I thought I would start off today um, just asking both of your approaches to how you um, to how you lead. So how you lead as a woman, how you lead men and women, and kind of giving a feel for your uh, individual approach to leadership. So Rena, why don't we start with you? Uh, how would you say your approach to leadership is as a woman in leadership, leading other women? Uh, what would you say your style is? Um, I think I've developed a, a certain style because leadership uh, skills, in fact, are partly inherent and there's a lot that you acquire along the way. So if I looked at the inherent side of leadership, uh, I feel that my that one's affinity for other human beings, recognizing the uniqueness of individuals, that, uh, that in fact, uh, relationships in leadership positions are built on that mutual respect is very, very important. You've got to really uh, love the human process and be um, empathetic enough to always be viewing things from multiple frames of reference. And, and the latter I have learned 
to be better at over the years of, of, uh, of trials and tribulations and successes. Uh, so the, see, the acquired part of leadership, I think, uh, teaches you more about um, managing conflicts, about assessing uh, different personalities around a table uh, that are different from yours so that you can actually uh, bring people along to share, uh, uh, to engage in ownership of a shared vision. So that's basically encapsulating my views on leadership, inherent and acquired. I like that. I like that a lot. So you really focus on the human experience and just supporting, right, supporting your fellow humans through service yes. and, and love and all of those really wonderful things. I like that. Yeah, because I think uh, just to add on to that, in order to to bring out the best in people in diverse teams, uh, I think recognizing needs and where they're coming from helps you negotiate or navigate a path that is uh, of benefit to both to all parties. And I think that is a, a very basic um, principle for leadership today. I love that. I love yeah. that. Tamana, what would you say your personal approach to leadership is? So um, I am still learning a lot about leadership um, in my professional path, but um, I personally think that finding the members in your team who really need that, that push, that real connection with you or real connection with the situation is really important. And um, my other concept about leadership is to think about the situation and how, if there is a conflict or a situation, how to solve that without making it personal. Um, that really helps to bring the team together and sit down and you know brainstorm ideas so that everybody feels really included in the conversation. Um, and then people really get empowered and encouraged that, oh, this is a situation that we're all going to deal with together. So that's what I, like I that. think me. It makes me think of the book uh, Multipliers, which I've actually commented on before, <laughs> but how that book says that the best leaders are the ones who find the the most successful characteristics in their team and then learn to bring that out. So it's not being the genius in the room, but it's really being the genius maker. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like what you're describing, Tamana. Right, yeah, definitely. Great, wonderful. So I'd like to circle back um, to the International Women's Leadership Conference, because I know both of you attended, both of you were speakers, and I wasn't able to, to attend. So I was hoping that maybe each of you could talk about maybe some of the highlights of that conference and, and really, you know, there as a presenter, but also as a learner, maybe some of the key concepts that you took away from that conference that you wish you could share to other women in leadership positions. So kind of those, those key highlights that you thought, man, I wish other women could hear X. Tamana, what did you think whenever you were there? What are some strategies that, that you really wish you could take away to other women who couldn't attend? So one main thing that um, I, I have seen over and over and which was talked about it over there as well, that women need to um, think about themselves as leaders. We usually have a lot of self-doubt. You know, we think about us as of, are we really up for that position? Do you think I should apply? And even there, there were people who were talking, you know, they the, they were leaders, they have been leaders for a lot, long time. They also told that, you know, when they were looking at positions, when they were thinking to do things, they had that small um, voice in their head telling them that may, they may or may not be good for this. So take the leap of, you know, faith and, um, have more confidence in yourself. The other thing that I really learned was to approach your mentors, you know, talk to them. Um, and that really helps to uh, bring the other other voice that looks at you in with confidence and says that, yes, you can do this. So those are some of the things. And there was a, a very nice workshop done by Dr. Albino on uh, negotiation. And it's just not to negotiate about money, it's to negotiate about your career development. We all need to think more and learn more about. Oh, I love that. I love everything you just said. So you talked about imposter syndrome. 
which yeah. as a woman, I know I personally have suffered from that so many times. So mm -hmm. that insecurity that always runs through your head and says, oh man, am I an expert in this? Do I actually know enough, you know? And yeah. I, I've read some research that men really don't struggle with that yeah. in the same way that women do. So right. it's really interesting that you brought that up. I, I love that you talked about that. And then I also like um, talking about your worth and your value as more than just money, right? Right, definitely. So how do we, oh, go ahead. There were so many people talking about their personal experiences and it was, and internationally, um, you know, people were from all over the world, all, all countries. Um, and so that was something that was beautiful about the conference because um, we might live in different continents, but we still have the same issues. I love that. I love that. What about you, Rena? What were some of your takeaways from that international experience in terms of some of the things that women go through hearing their stories and then also advice that you might extend, some concepts that you may have learned there? Well, you know, I, I echo all of Tamana's comments because I, um, I have similar views or reactions. Uh, I came um, to the meeting um, with, of course, uh, being far more senior, say, than Tamana. And I was completely open to learning. And in fact, it turned out to be a learning experience for me uh, as much as it was sharing what I'd learned. You know, uh, I was filled with hope and optimism for the future. Uh, for many reasons, I think uh, there is a universality that unites uh, uh, women in the profession around the world, as Tamana said. I was inspired by the critical mass of leaders, uh, some representing countries that really um, have barriers that are very visible for women, cultural barriers, political barriers. So there was, for example, uh, the only female dean in all of the African nations was there. And she was very impressive, uh, as was the woman, the lady from uh, Saudi Arabia, who was the first dean and the only dean in the Middle Eastern countries. So uh, there was a unifying factor and yet one that uh, we identified were unique uh, characteristics and struggles of women in leadership positions. And so for me, uh, listening to stories, there's an art um, of storytelling, and that was the style of the meeting, which was unusual. So we had no PowerPoints and simply talked in a dialogue fashion, either in a panel discussion or as individual speakers. And I think when you're allowed the chance to tell a story about your journey, it brings out so much more than if you were just uh, trapped within the PowerPoint. I thought that was a unique um, feature. It was uh, uh, one that we took a while to adapt to the concept <laughs> because there was no PowerPoint and you just go in uh, kind of with points in your head. Uh, so I, I found that very engaging. It was a good style. It was engaging. Um, I personally took away, um, as Tamana uh, stressed, uh, the need to depersonalize. Actually, if you if you look at the mechanism involved, it really does involve women feeling the empowerment by simply reaching into their very core and turning on that internal switch of confidence. And it shouldn't come out as arrogance, but that internal confidence that we so easily can turn off. And the reason we turn off, I think it's a physiological difference. I think women tend to, um, and I am so guilty of this every day, to climb up the ladder of inference very quickly. So we assume how the other person, and it doesn't have to be a man, it could be a male or a female colleague, uh, feels about you or is reacting to a situation. Most often, it is a wrong assumption. But we've already reacted to it. And, and all it takes is to checkpoint. And then if it's really troublesome to be able to approach it in an open and uh, professional or respectful manner, and most often you'll discover, oh, that was not what the person was thinking. And I think that reactivity is very, um, very natural for women because we are caretakers. Um, and if we, I've learned that it's much better to be introspective than to be reactive. And that means depersonalizing and uh, having checkpoints around the way and feeling very confident of who you are from the inside. Uh, for, it's a very internal thing. Um, uh, and if, with that comes the sense of empowerment that you can actually get a lot done um, uh, in the least problematic way. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I like that. And, and it also reminds me of, again, one of those uh, sort of established leadership books, The Four Agreements. And one of yeah. them is Don't Make Assumptions. Yes. Right. Right. So you're sort of reinforcing that sometimes, you know, um, it, it really isn't a gender related issue that we find ourselves making these assumptions across the board and it can impact how we lead others and it can negatively impact how we lead others. So it's about kind of checking your gut and checking in with yourself yes. and sort of doing that process of self-awareness um, to kind of push past that to make those assumptions. And Rena, you brought up a really interesting uh, perspective that I'd like to follow up on. Um, and it's sort of the sense of women, that we as women are more emotional, you know, that we have these um, feelings and that these emotions sort of guide um, how we, how our products of leadership versus maybe how men lead. Um, and so I, I wanted to, to kind of get both of your thoughts on emotion and leadership because I was reading something and it was from, I believe, Harvard Business Review about how we are approaching culture and institutions. And the quote that I read was that um, so often we approach uh, emotion in the workplace as a bad thing, right? So you should be just here, you should be a robot, you should do your work, you should go home. And, and what this article challenged us to do was instead pay attention to the emotion because the emotion is actually an indication of values. And when you are able to process another person's values and you are able to see what they are connected to, it's actually really powerful. Oh. And you are leveraging an opportunity in the workplace by allowing those emotions and kind of sitting there in the discomfort and pushing through to sometimes tension. Um, and so I wanted to ask, since you, since sometimes women are viewed as these very emotional, um, we're, we're more emotional than men or maybe utilize our emotions differently, one, do you believe that's true? Two, if it is true and there really is this difference in how women approach emotion in the workplace versus men, is this difference a good thing? Is this is this empathy that we uh, are, you know, that, that sometimes research or sometimes just anecdotally women are viewed this way, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And is it true? So Tamana, what about you? I'll get your thoughts on this first. Um, I firstly don't think it's a bad thing. And we definitely, um, so um, how I would like to phrase it is, you know, we always talk about uh, the flight or fight response to a situation. Women usually don't have that response because we are differently wired than men. So we should, um, I think it's a good thing to use those emotions on the table and uh, use them in a fashion that is really good for the entire team. You can use those emotions to engage more people rather than just um, work like a robot, as you said, or distance them, which increases tension within the group and then makes it hard to lead that group. So um, I have personally um, been able to use those um, in a fashion that will help me uh, engage with people. Right, right. And research tends to reinforce what you just said, that for for instance, women clinicians are viewed as more empathic. They're viewed as, as more warm. They have a better bedside manner. Patients react to that better. So you're mm -hmm. saying that, you know, one, there probably is a difference. And number two, right. that difference is maybe a, a more powerful thing that we've been able to leverage as women. Definitely. I think um, that it comes back to that confidence that we have in ourselves. We should be able to use the qualities that we have rather than push them away and be more insecure about what these are the qualities that we have as women. Yeah, I love that. What about mm -hmm. you, Rena? What are your thoughts on viewing how women are viewed as emotional or using emotion in the workplace and in leadership? Well, I must say, when I was chair of a large department at Baylor in Dallas, um, there were 100 odd departmental personnel, of which several were men. And I realized that men actually do experience emotions at work. It's, it's how they deal with them that, that strikes the gender difference. And so they tend to keep it very internal and they manifest emotions or feelings by acting uh, in different ways, sometimes behind the scenes, right? But but men tend to internalize stresses. So I feel women are healthier 
<laughs> in many ways <laughs> and on both sides because emotion is in fact a human uh, uh, state of being right it's not um, given the X chromosome doesn't dictate how we react to situations so we both have emotion both genders I think women I've learned uh, personally that when you come to the table in a difficult situation that the best check for emotion is putting yourself in the other person's position, whether it's a female colleague who is a supervisor, and sometimes women uh, in supervisory positions don't treat other women well. So you know, can't assume that a woman boss is going to understand everything you're doing. She's thinking like a boss, right? So putting mm -hmm. yourself in that other person's position, thinking of what is stressing this person out, actually changes your own emotion status. So, and it, it kind of goes back to that, not taking everything personally, too, that you talked about, too. So it, it's okay to have passion, and it's okay to have vision. And also, when you run up against another person with passion and vision, not necessarily thinking we have conflict, right, and not necessarily thinking I need to take this personally, but thinking about it from their perspective, and that's a really key piece of empathy that women tend to do very well. So I was listening to a really wonderful podcast. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty avid podcast listener. Really? Um, yes, and, and I love everything having to do with NPR. I love all of their podcasts podcast, but I also really love Harvard, Harvard Business Review's podcast. Yes. <laughs> so they specifically have a podcast about uh, women in the workplace. And there's a lot of really interesting topics that they bring up. And one that I listened to a few weeks ago was called Sorry Not Sorry. And it was about how women communicate and how we as women have been um, conditioned to speak in certain ways. One of them is apologizing constantly. We do it when, not, when we're not even thinking about it. And, and we do it when we're not even accountable for the thing that we're that we're apologizing for. You know, we just we tend to do this constantly. And and even kind of what you were talking about, Rena, where we have the we constantly like need, feel the need to soften sometimes what we're saying, even if we are completely right and, and we're sitting here in this position. I, I, re, I remember going through um, in a sort of uh, work-related issue, somebody was negotiating something with me and I felt like they were, a man was negotiating something with me and I felt as though they were being completely unreasonable in this, in this go-between. And so they said something that to me was actually very harsh and how they kind of came back in their response. And I started my email with, I'm sorry, but we really won't be able to accommodate that request. And I thought back after I listened to that podcast, I thought, why did I apologize? Why did I apologize for you being unreasonable? And so this is a place that we tend to find ourselves. I don't know if either of yep. you have had that experience and oh, yeah. how we speak and, um, and sort of these conditions. And it reminds me of how Sheryl Sandberg told us to lean in. But then sometimes mm -hmm. when we lean in, we're viewed as aggressive and harsh and all of these other things. So I don't know if either of you have had that experience and having to actively change how you express yourself. Uh, Tamana, I know you brought up salary negotiations and that was something that you learned about and these verbal issues that we as women are conditioned to approach those types mm -hmm. of things like salary negotiations with qualifiers, with softening and how we express ourselves. What would you suggest uh, with women finding themselves in those positions? I think communication styles is not just a, a strategy or a concept that only women deal with. It's men who deal with it too, because everybody has a different style of communication. So, um, but definitely what you said that when we are more passionate or when we talk more directly, women are considered more aggressive as compared to men. Um, so, uh, I think it's more important to, uh, when you go in for a negotiation, to, to think about what all do you bring to the table. That is really important to understand where the concepts and the vision of the person is who you are talking to. It may be your boss. It may be you know, your dean or whoever you are speaking with. So what concepts they have, what vision they have for you, for the institution that you are in, and then bringing in the concept of negotiation as a piece of your career, a piece of your journey. It's not that you want more money or you want more time. 
what is that going to bring in um, from a larger perspective, from a long-term perspective for both you, the person who is sitting in front of you, and for the institution that you are in? So if you bring in those concepts, I think then um, the conversations becomes a little more easier because some people might find, especially women, very difficult to go in and ask for a raise or more time or more protected time, you know, whatever you are asking for. So think of it from a piece of what the larger path or what your larger journey is, and that makes it a little bit more easy. So it sounds like to me what you're saying is to really tap into your confidence as a woman. So whenever you're approaching these situations, it's really thinking about what you want for your career long term and how you can really communicate that in a very in a confident way, trying to push down those feelings of imposter syndrome like we addressed earlier. And so approaching that is it's OK to take ownership of your career and what you want to do for your career. Definitely. So I so I agree with all of that Tamana says, and I and I actually feel that the emotional qualifiers that seem to take away from women uh, need to be emphasized in a much more um, subtle way. So if I went into a conversation, I would not apologize. I would say, listen, I I I don't feel the need to apologize or say I'm sorry for this, but I really feel that I left that meeting. Uh, uh, dissatisfied and I think we can do better uh, negotiating a compromise you know mm -hmm. uh, rather than just backing off and keeping it uh, separate uh, or sequestered I feel it's better to confront but I've learned not to be as um, confrontational in style but rather more invi invitational right mm -hmm. I like yeah that. I don't know if that, I, if that answers some of your questions no it, it does and it's it's interesting that you bring this up too because um, in that podcast, uh, the, one of the hosts or, or the guest was talking about how ways that we can reframe instead of apologizing, that we can say things like, thank you. So oh, instead of saying, I'm sorry, I'm late for the meeting, but we can say, thank you for waiting. So it's about, you know, kind of what you just said, Rena. I don't necessarily need to apologize. If I'm not sorry, I'm not going to apologize. Or if I'm not at fault, I don't need to apologize. But it's actually about still addressing the issues and framing it in a positive way that can lead to better communication overall as a leader and allowing for that communication style to help guide a certain direction versus having to say I'm sorry or qualifying or minimizing how you feel too. Yes. And very often, and this is an example I'll give, I know it's a podcast, but the IADR, this is this research organization that Taman and I belong to, is celebrating 100 years of existence. So our centennial year is next year. And uh, I was on the board four years ago before I took on the presidency with this vision that we needed to dedicate an issue to women who, whose um, success stories or whose research actually blazed the trail for others to follow, both men and women. And I remember first bringing it up to the board and I got these blank stares, even from fellow women. It was like, oh, we're not so sure about the idea. And, <laughs> and, and so I think, and so when I, I, I was talking to Tamana the other day, the issue is going to be released now. And I think it's important for us to think of what that outcome is rather than the struggles that it took to get there. Women have that powerful role to play in incremental steps so that uh, whatever I do today for professional women in dental research is gonna make it easier for my daughter who is um, an academic um, medical uh, psychiatrist. Uh, she's gonna have an easier time uh, with her career than I did. And it was because of those small steps that we took. We can't change the world overnight, you know, basically. Right. So I think that's an important lesson. Something that I wanted to add to that was that, and it came out um, very strongly for me as a, a junior researcher um, in the um, International Women's Conference that we recently attended, was that we are lucky in the sense you and me both have so many role models that maybe were not there you know, 20, 30 years ago, that we should definitely utilize the, the stories and experiences that they had in the past. And maybe um, that will make 
our journeys, our leadership paths um, different, maybe easier, because we have those uh, people in front of us that maybe were not there for maybe Rena, you know, when she was uh, starting her journey. So that makes it a little bit more different for us. That means we can go and get advice from a woman leader who may give you different advice than uh, your male boss or your male mentor might give you. So that is very essential for us to, to think about and utilize. You know, women are not utilizing those opportunities uh, to the maximum. Right. And the other thing is when we talked about the special issue, you know, um, what I my um, experiencing writing the manuscript or um, helping co-edit was that the support that I received from from the senior leadership like Rena and uh, if I went to, you know, it spoke to Lois Cohen or Judith Albino is that they were able to connect us to so many women leaders and we got we were able to get the perspective of so many women leaders um, in the manuscripts or in the publications that's going to be so much more valuable for people so we should try and bring more women leaders on the table to get a more comprehensive picture of what strategies can be used to improve the future of women leaders in um, healthcare. yeah yeah i i love that uh, because you you brought up two really important things, which is number one, there's a lot of progress that's been made. Mm -hmm. And so we should celebrate that. You know, just yeah. even in the past 15 to 20 years, the number of women in leadership positions has doubled, tripled. So mm -hmm. it's something to say that women are are having more seats at the table. We are being heard. But on the other, um, on the other hand, you know there are more seats at the table, um, and it's doubled or tripled from like four percent to like twelve percent. Or you right. know, like we're still saying like there's a lot of room to go. We still have a journey ahead of us, but we have more access than we ever had before. I mean, yes. still in the healthcare field, we know that women make up the majority of the workforce, but have very few uh, leadership positions. You know, even though we make up the, the majority of the healthcare workforce. We're mm -hmm. still, we're not in administrative positions like we need to be in. And so it's about expanding the table for everybody. And I think on that same note, even though we have seen progress and, and women having seats at the table, quite frankly, the women who are sitting up and having the seats at the table mostly look like me. You know, I'm a white woman. So a lot of the progress has, has not been as intersectional as it needs to be. And so I was wondering if maybe you can share your perspectives on how to expand seats at the table to all women, because all of us bring a diverse perspective, but it seems like like a lot of the progress, as it has in this country altogether, has gone toward you know uh, racial inequity at times, and this includes women in leadership. So do either of you have any thoughts or perspectives on expanding the table to include, uh, to include women in a more intersectional way? Uh, what about you, Rena? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a, a very broad uh, and challenging, complex pro problem in our society. I think uh, dentistry, just so that I, I, if you don't have that background already, is already known to be a very white male dominated profession, period. Uh, and some specialties like oral surgery uh, are very, very much so, right? So, so we have to think in terms of pipeline development of getting first generation scholars into co colleges and then being attracted to the profession because that pipeline, which has natural leaks in it. So for example, uh, there was this uh, brilliant article in Nature Medicine that uh, talked about uh, a 50% dropout rate of women with PhDs from the biomedical research workforce. And that was mainly due to childcare. Uh, right. Now, when you, when you narrow it down to women of color, uh, not having role models um, in place is a huge disadvantage because people like to feel connected to someone who looks like them, you know? And, and I remember when I was president of AADR, I was standing on, on this big stage, uh, just, 
thinking, wow, you know, I was the first Indian to be in the position, but I wasn't so impressed with that as I was about um, the, the chance that there was a platform to actually influence people. And when I came down from the stage, a colleague of mine from um, uh, UCLA had his wife there, and she was a woman who was not a dentist or not part of the profession, a very successful business entrepreneur, and she's oriental. And she said to me, do you realize how powerful it was for me to see you on stage? And when she said that, I, I was like, really? Uh, and then I let it sink in and realized that having that woman of color in yeah. a visible position has much more power than anything that you could do in that position, really, uh, uh, behind the scenes. So, so that optics, the optics of um, having women in color is sorely needed in the dental profession. There aren't, uh, in fact, there are no women deans of color, as best as I know, uh, in dentistry now. Uh, there are women, uh, and they are a small number, uh, but there are not women of color. Um, and uh, for, for that example, Tamana and I, uh, I don't know if you feel the same way, I'm sure you do, Tamana, that IADR, a, a community that unites individuals based on that common love for research, Mm -hmm. gives you that platform to actually rise above and uh, learn styles and also become a leader. So there are forums, and I know that's your next question perhaps, where we, uh, women of color have a chance and opportunity to be um, visible, to be recognized and to serve as role models. As a woman of color on, at the table, um, I definitely think it's, it's important. Representation matters and we, we have the opportunity to meet and learn from, from these role models. So definitely use those opportunities to the maximum. We have the ability to expand the table. So it's bringing more seats and then also just making the table bigger. So do you, either of you have any thoughts on bringing more seats to the table? Because it's not about me losing my seat as a woman. It's about bringing more women with me. It's about bringing more women of color to the stage and representing them. Tamana, what do you think? How do we expand the table and make it bigger? Let me start by giving you a very recent and good example. Rina um had the idea for the uh, idr uh, women in science centennial and she could have been the sole editor for it but instead of doing that she invited me and she invited a dr um effie ioanidu uh, from university of connecticut uh, both of us um have been all three of us have been involved in the women in science network with an idr but Instead of just being on the top, sitting there, she decided to pull all of us. So now there are so many authors in that uh, centennial that's coming out that are, you know, women of color, women who are in different, uh, involved in different aspects of dentistry, uh, from you know, psychologists to endodontists to periodontists. So now we have this colorful picture that provides you the aspects and the stories of everybody. So that yeah. I think is a good example. And um, I have been really lucky to have mentors, like um, since I started public health, um, working in public health, the first thing that I was taught was, can't do public health and research alone. You know, you have to have partners. So if you are going to bring more people along the way, there is going to be more inclusion more diversity of thought and the end product that you make is going to be much better. So if we start to talk about this more, if we start to discuss this more with our students, the ones that we teach, the ones that we work with, I think then that thought process is going to become bigger and we'll stay with them once they leave. And um, I think that's going to include more people. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically what you're what you're saying is when you are in a position of power and you are able to leverage creating more seats that you do that thoughtfully and you do that with purpose. Right. So exactly what Rena did is she's she's saying, I have this position of power. I have the opportunity to create the seats. So let me right. make sure they're going to the right people. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It really brings up. Uh, oh, sorry, Annalise, were you going to. So for me, uh, I find myself um, 
looking at what um, the, the light or the, the beam from that lighthouse, um, what was that that guided my career, right? And I'm, I'm always reminded of an one-liner that Oprah um, quoted in her magazine. When she turned 50, she was asked, um, what do you want to be now? Because she'd already achieved so much, um, a billionaire and so much success. And uh, she said a simple thing. She said, I want to become the person I was meant to be. So I feel that there, I feel that I oftentimes have given the advice that, and I do to uh, fellow peers and to myself and to men mentees, that it is important to achieve excellence because the backlash effect of not being excellent and being in a position of power is far more damaging if you don't have the expertise, the experience, the track record, it comes over time and it does involve you in say in academics and becoming excellent in teaching and research so that, so that not only do you achieve your own potential, but then you're in a position to help others because token appointments are very, very, um, become very inconsequential and perhaps more damaging to women mm -hmm. in general, and especially those of color. Yeah. Yes. So Thank I'd you. like to actually circle back toward public health leadership, because I know this was something that you touched on, Tamana, maybe you'd like to expand on it, um, because public health leadership in general, um, being a woman in public health leadership, and, and potentially you know, being a woman of color in public health leadership, how do you feel like public health leadership settings differ than other leadership settings? Do you feel as though we have more diversity? Do you still feel like it's lacking? Do you feel like public health, being a woman in public health leadership, has is that different than other leadership settings, corporate or, or health settings in general? So um, I'll again start with an example. I was just um, appointed um, to the board of Delta Dental of Colorado and it's a corporate setting. And um, what I was amazed to see was how much diversity we had within that group. Uh, we had so many women uh, who brought different thought processes. Um, and there was, you know, still not as many women or men of color, few, but not but still, there was space at the table to bring in um, diversity and, and, you know, thought about inclusion. Um, when I look at public health, actually, I think we are slightly more diverse. Um, uh, as you rightly said, we do work with um, partners and collaborators, and we are looking to improve the health of the entire population, but also targeting our um, um, you know, our experiences for to improve the oral uh, health and oral health of um, people at risk. Unfortunately, they are a lot of time people of color, ethnic minorities. So we do want to bring people from those communities to understand what's happening and how can we really improve um, their experiences by understanding them. So definitely we are more diverse. However, still, I think there is a lot of room to grow um, because um, we as a population demographic is becoming more diverse, whether we like it or not politically. <laughs> um, and if that continues to happen, um, the needs of the population are going to change. So we will need more people from those communities that are underrepresented on the table. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So, so one, public health is, is maybe doing a better job than other spaces in, mm -hmm. in creating that diversity. And it sounds like you're echoing Rena's earlier comments of we want people in leadership that look like us. And right. I think in public health, we've been able to embrace that uh, maybe a little easier than other spaces. And so we create those pipelines. Again, that's sort of Rena was talking about earlier of, of getting people into leadership positions or at least getting people into the workforce and have the ability to matriculate into leadership positions in a more diverse fashion. So still lots of room to grow. We still yeah. have, we have a so long way to go for inclusion, but right. there's yeah. more opportunity. But, you know, there is this demand from the community as well. You can't do what they used to call helicopter research. You know, you go into a community, 
do the research and then leave. That's not appreciated by the people who are living in communities. You know, I used to work with the American Indian community on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and that is not the concept that they want anymore. And when I work with the Latino communities here at Denver, in Denver, um, same concept. So the communities are aware now that they want somebody who looks like them, and they want to make sure that the the research that's being done is really helpful to them and beneficial to their communities. So if the communities are becoming more encouraged and more empowered, then it is also easier to find people who would come to the table and talk to you about it. Yes, Ugh, I love how you just said that. That was perfect. That was, I could not agree more. Rena, what about you? What do you think in terms of, um, in terms of diversity and leadership in public health settings, uh, what's yeah. been your experience? Well, you know, obviously this is not my area of focus, um, though everything I'm, I hope um, I aim for, at least in my research, is directed to improving uh, health in general, and especially oral health, right? Um, I, I believe the public health space is the most powerful forum to influence changes in policy. And, and I'm so grateful that, that the large funding agencies like NIH are actually prioritizing the inclusion of women and minorities in, in even basic, even when we look at uh, experiments that involve mice, we have to have a gender basis mm -hmm. because of the physiological differences. That never used to be the case. And, and hence, women's health issues have suffered both as individuals in small communities and in large populations. So, so uh, Tamana is absolutely right. Creating that pipeline is going to be so important so that so we have feeder uh, populations of uh, individuals that go into public health that come from diverse disciplines. And if you ask me what the most exciting thing I faced this summer, um, I, we go to Vancouver for our big meeting. So for me, it's, it's a wonderful um, closure of a year that was filled with uh, success and a lot of travel uh, worldwide. But more than anything else is the fact that I have the privilege of mentoring a Native American college level student who wants to go into dentistry. Now, in Utah, uh, which is not known to be a very diverse uh, community, that is a huge privilege. And, and she, the gifts that she would bring to the table, in addition to inspiring me personally, is that she would take what she's learned, and, and her project is to look at the effect of environmental toxins on uh, prenatal development using teeth as biomarkers. And she's, when she wrote to me her essay, she said, you know, I live in a tribe where the nutrition is so bad, where most of my family and my friends are drinking well water that is contaminated. Uh, so what you're doing is, what I'm going to do is take this back to my community as a dentist who's interested in nutrition and make a difference. So that power, it is only on a one-to-one -one basis, but she has the chance to um, to branch out and to learn mentorship and to learn the science and to go back to a community. And for me, uh, this summer promises to be, you know, really exciting and rewarding personally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested. You'll have you'll have to email me and let me know how that goes because now I now I'm interested in hearing her research too. <laughs> yes. That sounds wonderful. So, uh, so we are coming to the close of our time together today. Unfortunately, I could probably talk to you guys forever. Honestly, I don't know if, if everybody would be interested in our conversation forever, <laughs> but I would, I would love to continue it. But before we close out today, I wanted to take a moment and just ask if you had any last thoughts, anything that if you could contribute as a women in leadership to other women who may be looking for leadership positions, what's the one thing that you feel like you would give to them? Tamana, what do you what do you want to leave us with today? I would like to say that women should believe in themselves a little bit more than they do. And the other thing is um, use your mentors, talk to them. You have role models. We are lucky. So let's let's use those opportunities. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Rena, what would you leave us with today? Ooh. I would say uh, that women, uh, the, the biggest empowering factor is to recognize that partnerships matter 
and that excellence guides success and i think it breeds excellence as well so so feeling that sense that internal switch that you have uh, in your little ecosystem the power to to rise to your potential and then to lift others around you so that it, it isn't this personal um, uh, journey that only you're taking to get to the very next to get to the very top because when you if you think that there is always another mountain to climb and the the concept that as you are on the ver the, the vertical part path to success that you always have one hand reaching for the next ledge that you can clutch onto whilst the other hand reaches out to help someone who is less fortunate or who doesn't have uh, the opportunities that you had. I think that makes for a very balanced uh, perspective on life in general and of course academic positions. So I would say believe in yourself, strive for excellence and help those around you. Yeah, I love that. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for ending yeah. us on that note. I want to thank Rina D'Souza and Tamana Tawari again for help for sharing their perspectives on women in leadership. Uh, this was an invaluable conversation to me, and I thank you both for for sharing your perspectives and helping me learn through the both of you today too. That's it for this week's episode of Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast holding space for public health professionals to share their stories. I hope you enjoyed our guests, Rena D'Souza and Tamana Chawari, sharing their perspectives on women and healthcare leadership. You might want to swing by our website, www.aidph.org, to learn more about the leadership opportunities we have available through the Academic Leadership for Residents Internship. Registration is open now for the September 2019 experience. Email us at programs at aidph.org to learn more. Thanks again to Rena and Tamana for sharing their time with me this week. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to Anecdotal Evidence. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>